Our scripture reading today takes place just after Pentecost in the book of Acts. It describes what life looked like in the very first Christian community. Uh, Most scholars today are virtually certain that the gospel writer Luke is also the author of Acts. And he wrote it as sort of a sequel to volume one. So volume one is the gospel containing the story of Jesus' birth, ministry, life, death, and resurrection. In volume two, in Acts of the Apostles, Luke shows the ministry of the early church taking shape and spreading in uh, throughout Judea and into Uh, and the gospel spreading to the Gentiles and to the known ends of the world. And this early group will face persecution and death, but also plenty of stories of Christ's followers remaining faithful and persistent to the gospel. I invite you to listen with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the second chapter of Acts, beginning with the 42nd verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you who know me and know the work I'm doing in my doctoral program know how much I like these verses. And Uh, how much they have spoken to me over the years about uh, the beautiful and profound simplicity in the lives of the very first Christians. Now, did they have to meet in the shadow of night? Sure. Were they confined to meeting only in the safety of members' homes? Yeah. Did they fear the consequences of their secret faith being discovered? Possibly. But despite all of this, Luke paints us a picture of an idyllic community who gave away possession, shared things in common, and lived in community serving Christ with glad and generous hearts. In light of the resurrection, these early followers responded to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ, by living austere and generous lives together. Much like our nation's leaders, when we look back to the ideals of the founding fathers for guidance, so too do church leaders look back to this ragtag group of followers for wisdom on what it looks like to live as faithful disciples in our own time and place. As you've been reminded for the umpteenth time, next week is our Consecration Sunday worship service and coffee hour. Many of you will be discerning in your households this week how much God is calling you to give uh, of, of your resources for the work of the church. I know Marie and I will be doing that. Now, this is not only a financial decision, but it's also a deeply spiritual decision as well. Now, a lot of folks emphasize percentages and such when it comes to giving, and I'm not going to do that. I'll let Danny and Maureen do that 
for you uh, and, and leave that uh, discernment really between you and God. Now, one of my favorite preachers named Lillian Daniel notes in her memoir about the difficulties she and her husband had um, as newlyweds with giving. They felt too financially strapped. They had too many other financial goals and needs to be able to give. But over time, she and her husband grew as givers and even became tithers before too long. That's giving 10% of your resources. And as you heard in our first reading, the tithe, the giving of 10% of your first fruits, is kind of the gold standard for church giving in its origins in the Old Testament. But even after becoming a tither, Reverend Daniel remembers being asked by her financial advisor, well, do you give 10% before or after your taxes? She responds, after taxes, of course. We're religious, but we're not crazy. <laughs> but she later reflected that even uh, after that, she and her husband continued to grow and even became before-tax tithers. Uh, to me, this shows us sometimes we might get a little lost in the numbers. And even as a pastor who has ministered through a dozen or so stewardship seasons, giving can be a difficult issue to address, especially in the annual stewardship sermon, which if you haven't figured out yet, that's what we're giving through, we're working through now. Uh, what one of my seminary professors once called the sermon on the amount. Takes a minute. But you know, if I were to avoid stewardship and giving from the pulpit, I wouldn't be faithfully covering the scope of the gospel. Jesus uses metaphors regarding money more than almost any facet of life to describe what the kingdom of God looks like. You know, something interesting, the word give occurs in the Bible more than believe, pray, and love combined. I think the significance of giving in the Christian life speaks for itself here. But I'm not going to talk about how much to give. That's a, a deeply personal uh, financial as well as spiritual decision with your household and with God. But rather, I want to talk about how to give and maybe why we give. The spiritual mindset that God calls us to maintain as cheerful givers the location, the impetus for faithful giving. And let's be clear, this includes, but also goes far beyond financial giving. When we collect the offering, we say that as a response to hearing the word and with hearts overflowing with gratitude, let us bring forth the offerings of our lives and the fruits of our labor. Today in worship, we have had a great example um, in multiple ways of the musical offerings in worship. Uh, led by our handbells and our, our vocal singing choir, um, our, the music that, that Anne and Sarah provide and, and lead us through each week. Our children and youth offer and give uh, to God as they um, lead us in worship by serving as acolytes or coming up to the children's message and, and uh, sharing and reflecting on faith for um, us all to think about together. That's giving too. Our Sunday school teachers, I know there's a lot of you in, in the pews right now, 
Each of you give faithfully, devoting time and energy into the spiritual nourishment of our community. I even know members of our congregation, though unable to be present with us physically during this crazy pandemic season, give in numerous ways, even by faithfully praying for our congregation, our community, each of you, each and every day. But where's the locus of this fruitful outpouring of love through time, talents, and treasures? What is the rooting, the posture of our giving? I think this is what the early apostles show us so well in our, in our reading today. Luke describes this first Christian community in our reading, one that was likely made up of both wealthy and poor folks alike, but nonetheless, together they shared in their commitment to the Lord. He tells us that all who believed were together. They held everything in common. That Greek word is koina. They shared their, sorry, they sold their possessions and together shared the proceeds with one another so that they might devote their lives to worship and prayer. As a result, Luke tells us that day by day, as they spent much time in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. It's immediately clear that God and not money is in control of the lives of these apostles. It's a community without greed. It's a community without need. This idyllic verse has summed up how theologians and pastors have envision the Christian life and the makeup, the, the structure of the church ever since. But, of course, we don't live in an ideal world, and the first church didn't either. The world we live in is not very conducive to giving away all your possessions and living in community. Some of us may even feel like we're not in any sort of shape to be giving at all. But what sticks out to me from this verse seems to be the attitude of the believer we see so present in these first Christians. An attitude that's summed up in the phrase saying that in all they did together, it was dining at table, giving of possessions, or being together in worship. In all this, they did all of this with glad and generous hearts. Everything they did, they did with joy and gratitude because of their experience of the living God present and at work among them. I think this is a mantra we can all get behind as Christians. No matter what or how much God is calling us to give, God is calling all of us to give with glad and generous hearts. To give as a grateful response to the grace we have experienced in Christ. One of the great theologians of the 20th century, Karl Barth, says this, Grace and gratitude go together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice of an echo. Gratitude follows grace like thunder to lightning. To Barth, if the essence, that is the very being of God, is grace, then we as humans are rooted that our very beings are rooted in gratitude. This has been a really big thing for us as Presbyterians and as Christians in the Reformed tradition. If we backtrack 500-some years to the birth of the Reformation um, and Protestantism, one of the biggest problems people like Martin Luther and John Calvin had with the church of their day 
was the practice of buying indulgences, basically a way to buy your way or a loved one's way into heaven. To Luther and Calvin, this focused too much on works and merit rather than the grace of God, responding to that grace of God. Sure, we as Christians do good things for others. And yes, we give to our churches with our time, talents, and treasures. But this isn't a way to get a better room inside the pearly gates one day. It's not to win God's favor. Rather, we do these things as a joyful response of our experience of grace, of our experience of the living God present and at work here and among us. The Christian life is then, like Bart so eloquently said, one of gratitude, that is the response to God's grace. You might notice that our uh, pattern of worship even follows this theological path. I invite you to take out your bulletins for for a second. We're going to do a little exercise here. Uh, Look at the big bolded uh, headings. Um, There's four of them that that shape our, our worship. The first one is we gather. So we gather together by singing, by praying, by uh, confessing our, our brokenness and reconciling with God and one another. And then what do we do next? We encounter God's word. We encounter God's grace, God's love through, through the stories of scripture. Then this is the important one. What does the third one say? We were, wow, that was, that was a lot more in unison than I was expecting. <laughs> we respond. We respond to, to hearing God's word, to hearing a message of God's grace and love for us in Christ with these acts of praise, commitment. These are all acts of gratitude. And, and yes, the offering time is, is in there as well. Um, these are all things we do as a response to hearing God's word read and proclaimed, to experiencing God's grace alive and among us. And then we go out with this word, strengthened, enriched, um, fulfilled, or nourished, to to go out and share this this gratitude with others and a hungry world. Responding to grace with gratitude is a powerful reminder, friends, that whatever God has given us is enough. Whatever God has given us is enough to give generously of our very selves and resources for the building up of God's kingdom among us. Whether we feel we have very little to give or we have a lot, whether we have grown in our giving, giving to becoming tithers, uh, that is giving 10%, or we're just getting started and trying to figure out where to start, God is, is calling us to respond to an experience of God's grace with, with these ways of gratitude, to respond with glad and generous hearts to the goodness of God in our lives and in our world. And, in doing so, participating in that grace and love alive and at work among us. Now, it's been a, a while, it's been a dozen years or so, but when Marie and I were, were getting, planning to get married, um, the pastor marrying us did the usual premarital counseling stuff with us, and eventually we got to the topic of finances. In this, he discussed the significance of giving in the Christian life. And what he said has always stuck with me. I was just a first-year seminary student at the time, but has, has really shaped my understanding of giving ever since. He told us that giving of our financial resources is both a reminder to ourselves 
as well as a statement to the world that God, not money, is in control of our lives. He instilled in us that giving is a practice of discipleship and how important it was just to simply start somewhere. 